Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together today. If you're a guest, welcome. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and I want to introduce to you Sarah Ali. Sarah has been a part of this church for a long time, and the last two years has served as one of our interns that you've supported through Rooted, specifically serving in our area of student ministries. So Sarah's going to be a senior at UW-La Crosse, and uh, she's very active in crew there in a local church and serving high school students and middle school students. And she recently returned from a trip with many of our students over to Haiti, where uh, they were working with one of our global partners, Mission of Hope. So tell us a little bit about the work and how you supported Mission of Hope. Definitely. So Mission of Hope, they're, or, yeah, they're an organization, their mission statement is um, an organization following Jesus Christ to see life transformation in every man, woman, and child in Haiti. And so we saw this at work in every single thing we did. Their desire is really to partner with the local Haitian church. So that was really beautiful to see. Um, one specific thing that we did that I want to highlight is the Farm to Table project. So we used actually the Advent offering funds from this past Thanksgiving from our church to buy seeds for local Haitian farmers to be able to grow crops. And then after those crops were grown, we as a church actually purchased them back and used them to package meals. In this picture, you can see we're packaging rice and beans. So just in a few hours, we packaged about 2,500 meals. And then, um, and then after that, we delivered it to a local orphanage. And we were just a small part in what Mission of Hope is doing because they feed actually 91,000 people per day. So that was really great that we as a church got to be part of that. Good, good. That's pretty amazing, 91,000 meals a day. Mm -hmm. So Sara, tell us a little bit how you saw God at work in the team there in Haiti in your own life. Fill us in. Yeah, we saw God working in so many different ways. So in a different project that we participated in, we were helping to build a latrine for um, a family in the village that we as a church sponsor. And as we were carrying these cement blocks down to the home of the family that we were building it for, the women actually started to get involved in the process with us and they were carrying the, the blocks with us. That was just really beautiful because the that just shows God's desire for people of different cultures and languages to be working and serving him together alongside each other. So that was really great to see God working in that way. And then in our own hearts, God did so much. But one thing that we were really blown away by was just the Haitian people. They are so um, just so thankful and um, happy and joyful. And that was really, really beautiful to see because they don't, they really don't have that much. I mean, they are the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, but yet they are so rich in the love of Christ. And I think that really showed us that that's what's important, that joy really isn't found um, in anything but in the hope of Christ. So it was really beautiful to see that. And we're coming back really wanting to live that out in every way. Good. Good. So uh, would you recommend a trip like this? Is this the kind of trip that's very different from any other kind of experience you can have here? Definitely. Everybody should go. Everybody. Good. <laughs> so this is one of our four global partners, and uh, we'll be having trips coming up in this next year. One of them is going to be kind of designed for people of different generations. So it might be even something you'd consider doing if you have a family. 
but it's a great way that we can just better understand God's heart for the world that he loves and also the world that loves the Lord. And just as Sarah was saying, one of the things that usually happens is we feel like we're the greater beneficiaries of these kinds of experiences. So thanks for your investment in the many different ways that intersect with this story, whether it was through Rooted or Advent giving or just supporting our student ministries here. And we're delighted to just see how you're growing as a woman of faith and using your gifts and want to really thank you, Sara, for the way you're serving in this place. Thank Let's you, Mark. Sarah Thanks for having me. So last week, we began our study in the book of Jonah. We have three weeks to cover this broad section of Scripture called the prophets. There's literally 17 books of prophecy. So before we jump into chapter 3, what I'd like to do is just give a, a little short overview of the prophets, how they're put together, how they work, how we should be thinking about the prophets, and how we should think about prophecy when we're reading that section of Scripture. So um, grab your Bible and go to the table of contents, and I want to just kind of show you how this holds together. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Uh, the 39 could be broken down in these kinds of sections, 17 books, then five books in the middle, the wisdom poetry books that we just looked at, and then 17 books at the end. So 17, 5, 17. The first 17 are divided up five books of the law and then 12 books of the history from Joshua all the way through 2 Chronicles. The last 17 have that same pattern. There's five major prophets, not because they're more important, because they're longer, and then you have the 12 minor prophets. When it comes to the 12 books of history and the 12 minor prophets, there's a parallel there too. The first nine deal with God's people in the land of promise, Canaan, the promised land, and the last three deal with the period of exile and beyond. And so if you look in your, in your uh, table of contents, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are post-exilic history books, okay? In the same way that the last three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are part of the prophets speaking to God's people after the exile. So look at the prophets, starting in Isaiah. Isaiah and Jeremiah are before God's people are taken into exile, so they're warning God's people, you got to get your act together, follow God with all your heart. Lamentations is Jeremiah's lament. Over what? Over the destruction of Jerusalem, because God has brought judgment now. And so King Nebuchadnezzar and um, the Babylonians have come in in 586 and crushed Jerusalem, that's his lament. Ezekiel and Daniel are post-exilic. And then you go from Hosea all the way through Zephaniah, that's pre. And you got Haggai, as I said before, to Malachi, sometimes referred to as Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, those are post. Now, the, the prophets are going to parallel a lot of the history that we read about in the Kings and in Chronicles. So it's a lot of the parallel from the 8th century B.C. down to the 5th century B.C. One of the things that we need to remember is 
the, the people of God in Israel start as a united kingdom made up of the 12 tribes. And these 12 tribes all have their antecedent in reference to the 12 sons, right, of Jacob. Now, when King David, who was the most powerful and godly, even though he's very fallen, we remember, um, when he passed on the kingdom to Solomon, it was united. And under Solomon, he started out well. Remember, we just, we just were catching up with him at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes. He starts out well, he loses his way, and he's going off to try and find meaning and security and significance and happiness outside of God. And at the end of his life, he's reflecting back and he's saying, at the end of the day, we got we to gotta fear God, see God for who he is, and live rightly before him in a humble, reverent, affectionate obedience, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Well, he lost his way. Remember what the Bible says? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it said his wives, many from foreign countries who served and worshiped foreign gods, led his heart astray. And God's word came to him as a word of judgment to say, look, I'm tearing the kingdom from you. I'm going to divide the kingdom. And so he has a son, Rehoboam. And the ten tribes in the north say, we don't want any part of Solomon and his family. We don't want any part of Rehoboam. We're going to get our own king. There's a split. And so there's a northern kingdom. Some of the prophets are speaking of the northern kingdom, like Jonah. And that's made up of ten of the tribes. Sometimes the northern kingdom is called Israel. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. Sometimes it's called Samaria. Then there's the southern kingdom. The two tribes almost exclusively referenced as Judah. So that's our overarching thing on the prophets. Now let me just say a few more things. The prophets come like prosecuting attorneys who say, look, you guys, you made an agreement with God. You had a choice to refuse it, but you came into this covenant relationship where you promised that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the, and the prophets come and say, and here's how you haven't done that. And here, here's how you haven't done the second part of that. And love your neighbor as yourself. They're pointing it out. So the prophets come speaking for God. Sometimes we think of prophet, we always think about foretelling, the future. There's some of that. But, but the preponderance of prophetic prophecy is God's speaking through his prophet for today. Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says to his people today. So what does the prophets usually say? You've sinned, you've broken the covenant. They'll point out their spiritual unfaithfulness. They'll talk about how they're trashing the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, the orphans, right? They'll point out how they've got this external hypocritical thing where it's a facade. It looks good on the outside, but inside it is not good. It points it out. Then what it does, the prophets come and say, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to turn back to God. Here's a classic um, word from the prophet Joel on this very thing, Joel 2.12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Not external stuff, heart stuff. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And then he just says, and here are the consequences. If you turn back to God, it's going to go good for you. God is not going to bring judgment upon you. If you don't, 
well, then you're going to face the music, and the music is hard. You're going to hear all these voices that are speaking a different language. It's these big, powerful nations that are going to whisk you away, and they're going to plunder you, and they're going to bring all kinds of horrific things against you and your loved ones and drag you away in a foreign country. And so Zechariah in chapter 7 now, he's a post-exilic prophet, so he's reflecting back on what happened. And here's what he says, verse 11. But they refused to pay attention to what? To God's prophets, to God's word. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Now, we'll get to Jonah. What's unique about Jonah is this. He's the only prophet who is specifically sent to deliver a message to a group of people outside of Israel, the promised chosen people of God, the descendants of Abraham. And as we catch up with that, it's a reminder that this has been God's heart from the very beginning. So remember when he took this guy who was an idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans, his name was Abram, and, and he said, Abraham, I, I want to come into relationship with you, and to this end, I want to bless you. And I want to bless you so that through you and your family, all the families of the world will be blessed. And so God's saving purposes always had the world that he created and loves in view. And Jonah focuses in on God's love for the world. But it's unique in that he's the one prophet who's going to speak to a people outside of Israel. Here's what we know about Jonah. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it tells us that he predicted the restoration of the land of Israel, the northern territory specifically, to go back to its old ancient boundaries through the efforts of their king, Jeroboam II. So he was popular. He had a good word. Hey, God is going to expand our boundaries, which is a very merciful and gracious thing because the Bible says Jeroboam was a wicked guy, and he led the people into more worship of idols and things like this. And by the way, the idolatry that was going on in Israel included the people of God offering their own children as sacrifices to these foreign gods. So he's a popular prophet, and he's liked, but boy, he's overboard in more than one way. So he's literally man overboard in chapter 1, right? When he convinces the soldiers, the only way this storm is going to stop, the only way you guys are going to be saved is you got to throw me overboard. Well, he's overboard in many ways, not just literally. So fundamentally, he's overboard in that he's like a godly man. He's a prophet. What do prophets do? They deliver God's message. What does the prophet Jonah do? God says, hey, Jonah, I got a job for you. I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh, and I want you to bring him a word from me. It's a word of warning. It's a word of judgment. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that, God. I'm going to go this way. I got a better idea. You deal with Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish 
far, far away. And so here's a guy who's supposed to follow God. He's supposed to give the message for God, and he doesn't follow God. He doesn't want to give that message. And the, the, the reading of the book of Jonah makes it clear it's not because he was afraid of Nineveh, and he could have been. Like, they were mean, brutal people. He's going, I'm not going to Nineveh. Like, I'm going to go to Nineveh and attend my own lynching. No, you got the wrong guy, God. No, there's no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is he's afraid that in going and giving this word of judgment and warning that the people of Nineveh are going to have a wake-up call and turn to God and actually receive and experience the mercy of God. And he doesn't want that because he knows something about them. Now, we don't have this in the biblical record, but the history of the Assyrians and the record tells us that their king exacted taxes on a king in Israel that Jonah would have known all about, King Ahab. And the deal was this, Ahab, we'll let you live. We'll let you stay where you live and your people live. But here's the deal. We want some big-time taxes every year. And so he knew of that. He knew about how life had changed under the Syrians. Perhaps he knew because he was a contemporary prophet to the prophet Hosea of Hosea's future prophecy in chapter 9, verse 3, where it talks about this Assyrian empire sweeping down on Israel and destroying Israel. And what he knows in his heart of hearts is those people do not deserve the mercy of God for what they're doing and what they may one day do. I hate those people and everything about those people. Now, here's what, so we've got to catch up with this about Jonah because here's what's unique. He hates the people of Nineveh, but he loves the sailors in the sense of he's willing to die to save the sailors. They're not Israelites. Remember, call on your gods. They're all calling on their gods. Their reference is pagans. They're outside of the people of God. He likes those people. He's merciful to those people. He's willing to give up his life for these people, but not for those people. Had hatred for those people. He doesn't want them getting a mile from the mercy of God. So his problem isn't with, with he's afraid for his life. He's afraid of the mercy of God Rescuing a people that he wants punished. So here we are in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's a good phrase to underline. Second time, think second chance. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no loudspeakers, right? There's no, there, there, there's, they didn't have a crusade in the middle of the city in the stadium. He's on foot going, right, sharing the same message. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Think like a burlap bag. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. 
But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So we want to talk about the mercy of God today. Mercy is a beautiful thing. I know you know that. Has anybody ever gotten a warning ticket? That, that's mercy. Mercy is we, we're not getting what we deserve. We deserve the speeding ticket. He told us we were over the limit, but he gave us a warning, and that was like, thank you. That was like, that was a great day. That was a good day. I got a warning. Mercy. When we get mercy, it's a beautiful thing. But we know the beauty of mercy even more profoundly when we didn't get mercy, when we got nailed by someone, by some group, by some entity. And it really hurt. And it really left a bitterness in our souls. Mercy is life-giving. And mercy is for each of us today. And I want us to catch up with the two groups that get mercy what it looks like that we might connect our hearts and our lives to what the Bible says is the, the richness of his mercy. What the Bible says are every day in Lamentations 3, there's what? New mercies. That God's blessing rests on the merciful, blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. I want us to catch up. Now, a lot of people, as you're reading through the Old Testament, especially going, I don't see any mercy, man. It just looks like God is mad at everyone, and he's wiping out everyone, and I don't know if I like this God. He's just this just ticked-off God. Oh, we're going to see the beauty of his mercy, which actually is throughout the whole of Scripture, but we'll see it in a beautiful way. So who's the first recipient of his mercy in chapter 3? Answer, Jonah. So let's just kind of build kind of a framework. So who's Jonah? Well, he's an Israelite, right? So he's part of the people of God. He loves God. He's a follower of God. He wants to be a, a fearer of God, right? He wants to live in reverent, affectionate, humble obedience with God. He's a prophet, He's a religious leader, like he's a big guy in Israel. He's someone who's in regular connection with God. That's who Jonah is. So, but who else is he? Well, recently he's put on his resume, he's a disobedient, rebellious, hard-hearted, racist prophet of God. Oh, there's a little bit more information. What else do we know about him? That he clearly knew what God was asking him to do, and he clearly, with eyes wide open, said, mm -mm, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. Not with that message. I'm going here, and I'm, I'm not going to give anybody a message. I'm hiding down in the lower berth of the ship, never to be seen and heard from again. So, like, let's just catch up with it. He's a guy who, with eyes wide open, knew what God was calling him to do and said, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to do that. I want to go my way. And what did mercy look like for Jonah before chapter 3? Well, let's go back to, guys, you're going to have to throw me overboard. So can, can you just see it? Two guys, right? 
Two guys, one guy's got his legs, right? One guy's got his arms. They did, right? We do this, right? And then they went, poo, just like that. And boosh, he goes in. God was merciful that he didn't send Jaws. Right? Because right? if you and I were making the movie, oh, man, let's just do that. Let's just send Jaws and tear them up. And God could have said, you know what? I've used donkeys before to get my message. I can get any prophet to go to Nineveh. I don't need you, Jonah. You're shark meat. He was merciful, right? He was merciful in saving his life while he was three days underwater. He was merciful when the fish vomited him up that he wasn't in the middle of the ocean when he did it. And he landed him on the beach in a pile of you know what. But the mercy of God came when God came to him a second time with another chance to obey. That's probably a really important thing to catch up with. Because there's a lot of people like Peter who was hanging his head after he denied Jesus three times that needed to know that our God in his mercy gives us a second chance to follow him, to follow him. And that's what it looks like to a disobedient guy with his eyes wide open going, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And some of us have done that, and we're reaping the consequences for what we've done. We pleaded to God for forgiveness, and we've received it. It just doesn't feel like that because we still keep running into the consequences. But those two things hold true. And one day, by God's grace, we won't ever deal with the consequences of our sin when he comes back or takes us home. But it's easy when we're dealing with the consequences of our sin, having asked for forgiveness for that sin, to feel like, gosh, God could never use me again because I so blew it. Because, like, I knew what I was doing. And I did it willfully. I was so bad. I was so rebellious. And now I'm out of the game. I'm in the penalty box because he doesn't need me, doesn't want to use me. And all the tapes are playing. And we get sidelined. And so we go back to it. And we go, praise God. But he's a God who is merciful and gives us a second chance. To what? To obey. To follow him today. If you're looking for, where's my Nineveh? Your Nineveh is today. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if there's anything more specific than he lays on your heart, great. That's gravy. He's just giving you more. If, if it's like, you, you got to go and make it right you got to go and ask for forgiveness. That, he's giving you a second chance to line your heart with his purposes and find joy and meaning and hope as you live out the mercy of God that you've been extended. That's what it looks like. So then there's a second group of people that are the recipients of this mercy. They're the Ninevites. Now, the description of the Ninevites doesn't come from Jonah. It comes from the king. What does he say? Man, we're messed up. We're like wicked people. We do bad things. We are violent. We're going, wow, this sounds like a lot of cities today. Hello? Like the news. Jonah knew better. The Ninevites didn't know better. They've, they haven't received the revelation from God. They don't know 
who God is? I mean, yes, Romans 1 tells us that in their own conscience and, and in creation, they could know things about God, but they, they don't know about this God who is personal, this Yahweh that calls us into a covenant relationship and what that looks like. They don't have the law. They don't have the prophets. This is the first time they're running into this, so they don't know better. And so how does the mercy of God look to these people? He goes, not what I would expect it. But it was a, a word of judgment and a sign of mercy. That's how it came. It came from a word of judgment. Go back to verse 4. This is what he said. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. If I said, just imagine one of the great cities of our world, millions of people that live there, it is far from God, it is a godless place, it is a violent place, and one day God sent Billy Graham or somebody else to go through the city streets of that town, and they all, all of them, repented and gave their lives in faith to God. What do you think he said? What do you think he did? I, I, don't, I don't think you're thinking, well, I bet you he pulled off a Jonah thing and, they, and he went through the city streets saying 40 more days and, and this city's going to be overthrown. And that, that's what God's mercy looked like. It, it was merciful to God that he gave him 40 days. It was merciful to God that he sent a prophet to help them know that what they were doing was offending the living God. It was a merciful day. Because I tell you what, Jonah must have been bartering, saying, God, 40 days, come on. That is a long time. Can we just shorten this thing down to 40, 40 like hours? In his heart, he's going, I really only want to give them 40 minutes. No, really, 40 seconds is all I think they deserve. He, he gave them a word of warning, of impending judgment. It was a gracious word. It was a severe, hard word, but it was a merciful word that was waking him up to the realities that there is a God and that we, we relate to this God and how we relate to each other and they were not in right relationship and the consequences would be severe. And that was part of God's mercy delivered through an unlikely, reluctant, rebellious prophet. But let me say that he didn't just send a man with a message. He sent a man who lived the message. What part of the message? That there is mercy with this God. So just think about it. He's in the belly of the fish. For how long? Parts of three days. So, you know, he, he, he was doing street evangelism, right? He was, he, so it was close proximity when he was talking to people. And when he got close to people, people kind of went like this. Like, dude, you really smell bad. Where have you been? And he looked bad. Those stomach acids, right, did stuff to his skin. Jesus said that Jonah was a sign. That he was a sign. And a sign is something that points to something beyond itself. So that's the same word for miracle in the New Testament. He was a sign that pointed to the mercy of God. So when we read a narrative like this, and it's giving us facts about the story, 
It's just giving us certain things. Trust me, there was more to his ministry than those 10 or 11 words, however many they are. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's just telling us that was the heart of his message. But Jesus tells us in the Gospels that another part of the message was Jonah, that he was a sign. And he was a sign that pointed to the mercy of God because Jonah's story was what to the Ninevites? I'm a prophet of God. I ran the other way, and God saved me from the storm, from the seas, through a fish, in the fish, and he got me up on shore, and that's why I'm here, because of the mercy of God. He's so acquainted with the mercy of God that when we get next week into chapter 4, he's going to say, and that's the reason I didn't want to go. And so the mercy comes to the Ninevites who didn't know better for their evil ways in a hard message where God says, you got to know that you keep going this way, you're going to be overthrown. In fact, the message is, you are overthrown. 40 more days and it's over. And that was a hard word that was a merciful word. And that prophet was part of God's mercy. And we just note this, that nothing can stop the mercy of God. Not the wickedness of the Ninevites, not their violence and destruction on each other, not a disobedient, rebellious prophet, not a storm, not a fish, nothing. God is about saving a people back into a relationship with himself for his glory and our good. And Jesus is not even the gates of hell can stop the onslaught of God's mercy and grace for all people. And we just note that. So what happens? Verse 5. They believe God. What does that mean? They trusted God. What, what specifically did they trust? They took God at his word. I'm going to say it over and over again so we just go, that's what it means to believe. That's what it means to believe. Take God at his word. How did they receive God's mercy? They took God at his word. His word that came through the prophet, this word of judgment and warning. His word that came through a, a messenger who lived and demonstrates the mercy of God. They took God at his word, and they were serious about it, so serious that even their cats and their dogs, along with their cattle and their oxen and their pigs and their whatever it was that was moving on the ground, everything had a piece of burlap. Everything had sackcloth on it. They, they were fasting, and they urgently prayed to God for mercy, right? And they turned away from doing what they'd been doing, calling urgently on God to have mercy on them. They had nowhere else to turn, and they turned to the only one they had a hope in, and that was God's mercy. And this is the, this is the miracle of Jonah. So the miracle of Jonah is not the fish. The miracle of Jonah is that the whole city turns to God and receives his mercy. A people who didn't know better, a people who didn't deserve it, and a people who were in God's gaze of mercy and compassion. That's the miracle. And that tells us so much about God. In 2 Peter 3, 9, 
The Lord says to us, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Like some of us are thinking, man, it's so messed up. Why doesn't Christ come back? And here's the answer from Scripture. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But the Bible is clear. The doctrine of God being a merciful God doesn't mean that everyone is saved. It's not teaching us universalism. It does not say because God is merciful, everyone receives mercy and forgiveness. Like the people of Nineveh, mercy is received as we take God at his word and turn from all that we are and have done that isn't God-honoring and seek to live our lives for him. So verse 10, what happens? When God saw what they did and how they turned their evil ways from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. He relented. So in Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah's talking about how God's not fickle. and he did, No, this is just how it works. When we walk in obedience, we expect God's blessing. When we walk in disobedience, you know, hard things, his curse. Jeremiah 18, 7, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, think Nineveh. And if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, think Nineveh, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And conversely, if another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, that is blessed. And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I have intended to do for it. And if that's true of nations, huh, that's true of you and me. Mercy in the turning. Mercy in the turning. So there's a few things in application. And we'll get to this first one a lot more next week. But let's just note some things. Jonah knew God. He was a prophet of God. He had good theology. He knows God's character. He knows that he's a merciful God. He gives great praise and thanks to God. Chapter 2. Ben and his team could write an awesome worship song about chapter 2. He acknowledges salvation comes from the Lord. He's got it all right in his mind. But his heart is really broken. And the thing, the specific thing we want to note in Jonah is he's got got racist hatred for a definite group of people. And as he does that, his heart is not reflecting God's heart, the prophet of God. This is the unique contribution of Jonah. Because he's he's kind of the sailors. We just said that, right? He's kind of those pagans, but he's not to these. And he's got reason why he's not kind of these. Because they're bad people that do bad things. And we got to catch up with, is there a chance that my feelings towards a particular people group, however you want to define that group, if it's politically, if it's in any other way, ethnically, that, that we're not joining God. What do we say is our mission here? We're saying our mission here at Door Creek is to join God in changing people into devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love. That's his invitation when he says to the church, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them and teach them, right? And so we, we just want to say, is that stuff 
in my heart. And it's hard to know what's in our hearts because the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. So as we're we're trying to grow to become more and more a church for all people, and when we find that there's a little bit of that or a lot of that, where we say, God, that, that is not your heart. Fix my heart. Take that out of my heart. I want my heart to be like your heart for the whole world. That's the first application. The second application is for any of us like Jonah. We know God. We follow God. And eyes wide open, we say, uh-uh, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And we've done it. And we need a second chance. I was just talking to someone after the service. And it was just kind of a classic response. I, I, I know he's merciful, but I just don't feel it. That's the battle That's the fight of faith. That's the fight of faith. Your feelings are going to lead you astray, doesn't matter how strong they are. Jesus says, there's a better sign than Jonah. It's me. And that's what's going to convince you in the mercy of God. Listen to what Jesus says in his gospel. Matthew 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title of himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. I don't feel feel like God is merciful. Well, then we just lost lost sight of the cross. Jonah deserved to get thrown into the drink. Jesus didn't get deserved. He didn't deserve to get thrown into into the tomb. We experience God's mercy because he suffered our punishment and took the full blunt of God's punishment and his wrath on himself. And so we're we're disobedient. We're out of the game thinking we're in the penalty box. Just remember the story of Jonah. And and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He he says, come on. Don't, come on. He takes his body, come on. Get get over your pity party. Stop believing the lines that I can't use you again. Let's go. Follow me today. I've got work for you to do. And the final group is the people who don't know better, and maybe that's you. You didn't didn't grow up. You didn't know a word of this Bible. You never heard about God. You never heard about Christ and who he is and what he's done. And you look at your life and you go, man, I messed it up big time. And God is showing himself to me, and I understand that he is, and I'm not living rightly with him, and I I need to turn around. That's a clear thing, and you do that. You, You take him at his word. That's what the Ninevites did. You confess who you are and what you've done, 
and you fall on God for mercy and grace, and you receive that through faith and the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who takes away all of our sin. And there's nothing you've done as a Christ follower. There's nothing you've done as a person who's not yet a Christ follower that, that, the, that God says, oh, sorry. I didn't, did you see the asterisk? <laughs> that thing's not covered. There's no asterisks. There's nothing you've done. His mercy is rich. So let me just say there's a third sign. There's a sign of Jonah. There's a sign of Christ, who's the ultimate sign. And then we become many signs. That's what Ephesians 2 says. We're many signs. Listen to it. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So Jonah had a death to life. Jesus has a death to life. And apparently we do too, because we were dead in our sins. We weren't living for God. Now he's raised us up. And may people see the transformation. And I'll tell you when they get the first quick glance. We traffic in mercy with each other and with the world and with those who've wronged us. And it's a real, genuine response to things that are awful that you should be so angry about and want to seek revenge for. Mercy is not sweeping it under the... He didn't sweep under their sin, Ninevites. He knew his son one day would die for all of that. And mercy is this beautiful thing that connects people with our merciful God and with his grace, with his son. Let's pray. So, Father, we need your mercy because we are wide-eyed, open people just like Jonah in little ways and big ways that go, "Mm mm-mm, don't want to do that. So thank you for giving us a second chance and reminding us of that even today. May we walk in obedience. Grant faith to those who understand that they are not living rightly before you. Would you give them an understanding of who you are, your great love for them, their need to turn away from the things that are destroying others and even themselves. And may they know of your life-giving mercy. May we as a church be known as a merciful people, reflecting our merciful God, who doesn't want anyone to perish. In Christ's name we pray, amen.